Thank you for joining us today. Back in March of uh, 2023, Longwoods hosted University Health Network and VHA Home Healthcare to discuss a new models of care and improve on the care experience and integrating multiple aspects of care in and out of the hospital. If you missed that presentation, it's available um, on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash Longwoods TV. That conversation sparked uh, more collaboration and a desire for a deeper dive. We are here today to discuss some of those areas. To start us off, I would like to introduce Jordan Miller. He's an assistant uh, professor and associate director of physical therapy at the School of Rehab and Therapy at Queen's University. Jordan, it's all yours. Wonderful, thank you so much. I'm just going to switch over to uh, our presentation here, uh, in addition to our faces. Uh, welcome, everybody. We're excited uh, to, to speak with you here today and hope this uh, that a, a presentation and some dialogue uh, helps stimulate some important thinking around uh, responding to some of the challenges that our health system is facing right now. And in particular, our topic today is about improving access to primary care by including physiotherapists in team-based models of care. I'd like to um, start off with a land acknowledgement uh, today. Um, I'm joining you from Queen's University in, in what's now known as Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Queen's is situated on the traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory, and I'm grateful to live as an uninvited guest uh, on these lands. I appreciate that everybody on the call is signing on from different territories across Turtle Island uh, today, and I encourage you to take a moment to acknowledge the lands from which you're joining. Uh, as a white settler on these lands, um, I also want to take an opportunity to reflect on, on how the land acknowledgement relates to our work here today. Uh, we're going to be discussing health service delivery models that include uh, integrating physiotherapists as a way to improve access to primary care across Turtle Island. We have health systems uh, that continue to oppress and marginalize uh, certain groups, in, including Indigenous peoples uh, from, from across these lands. And so it behooves us uh, to think about uh, how mobilizing uh, additional resources across our health system in different ways um, might improve uh, access and address some of the systemic inequities that we see across our health system. So I encourage everybody to, uh, to, to link your reflection on, on the lands from which you join with our topic here today. I'm excited to be part of a, uh, of a great panel that are, are going to share both some lived experiences and some evidence uh, related to integration of physiotherapists uh, within primary care teams. Uh, and, and other models of care across our health system uh, that aim to uh, improve access to primary care. We're going to leave our introductions uh, to each of us uh, as we uh, transition from one part of uh, the presentation uh, to the other, but just wanted to reiterate Matt's uh, introduction um, that uh, we're welcome to, to take questions through the Q&A throughout and, and address them at key points through the, through the presentation. And we have no financial or non-financial conflicts of interest to report as we jump into our presentations here today. I'm going to get us rolling uh, with my part of the presentations, which really is a focus on the evidence um, of integrating physiotherapists within team-based models of care. Um, as everybody here knows, and probably the reason that uh, uh, in, in some way or another that, that you're joining here today is an acknowledgement um, that our health system's struggling with health human resource shortages, um, an aging population with increasing health service needs, and a health system that's not prepared to address these growing demands. Um, and that this combination contributes uh, to barriers to access and, and inequities in health uh, and the care available to people uh, across our health systems. 
the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences has outlined um, some cross-cutting issues uh, that need to be addressed in workforce planning to address these um, health human resource shortages and, and improve access to care. And those are um, wide ranging and there's a number, number of uh, contributing foci that need to be included within our plan of, of addressing this challenge. Today, we're gonna zoom in on one particular part uh, of the recommendations for addressing these challenges that we're facing. And that is the efficient deployment uh, of interprofessional team members practicing to full scope um, or uh, team-based models of care that might help address the um, access to primary care challenges that we're, that we're experiencing. We think that actually this is a great example. Um, and while, while there's going to be most, multiple team-based models of care that are part of the solution, um, integrating physiotherapists as uh, first contacts within um, certain areas of our health system is actually a place where we're ready to mobilize evidence and something that could be integrated within our health system um, uh, to, to improve outcomes uh, very, uh, very directly and in, in the short term. Uh, an example of where we've already got some strong evidence is integration of first contact physiotherapists and musculoskeletal care pathways, which we'll hear more about um, in, in one of our presentations today. We know from the evidence that physiotherapists can accurately diagnose, triage, and manage patients with musculoskeletal conditions. Advanced practice physiotherapy models of care, uh, where the physiotherapist is the first contact for somebody that might be referred um, for musculoskeletal uh, specialty care or, or orthopedic surgery, for example, um, has resulted in comparable uh, pain, disability, and quality of life, um, but been associated with reduced wait times and high levels of uh, patient satisfaction, and that it's looking uh, like the, uh, the, that these models of care actually improve cost effectiveness for example, by reducing unnecessary imaging uh, or specialist visits. So it provides a great opportunity to maintain high quality of care and satisfaction while re uh, improving access to care um, by reducing uh, wait times and, and improving cost effectiveness of the system. The, um, uh, our places where providing direct access to physiotherapy uh, has uh, across uh, around the world that have really improved outcomes. Um, and uh, there's a few systematic reviews in this area, two of the most recent here that I would, I would just like to highlight to, to share the state of evidence in this area is uh, that direct access physiotherapy versus usual primary care, uh, typically led by physicians in the, in the studies that are included. Um, for people with musculoskeletal conditions, the direct access to physiotherapy was associated with no difference in pain reduction, but improved outcomes in terms of function and quality of life and lower healthcare costs. Um, so this, these models of care providing direct access to physiotherapy um, can actually save the system money. Um, interestingly, even the physical therapy costs um, when providing direct access are, are reduced in a direct access model versus a, a, a first point of contact with a physician uh, leading to a referral to physical therapy. In the United Kingdom is some of the area where there's the most published literature around first contact physiotherapy. Um, and uh, as they have initially um, piloted and, and more recently expanded access to first contact physiotherapy across um, the national health system in the United Kingdom, um, the evaluation uh, reports and published literature um, suggest reduced pain intensity, improved health quality related to musculoskeletal conditions, 
64% of people report much better or better overall improvement. The GPs uh, or family physicians express confidence in the care provided by the first contact physiotherapist. And the patients report positive experiences, uh, high ratings of self-efficacy and confidence in self-management after seeing a first contact physiotherapist. Uh, in the United Kingdom, they use a, um, um, a, a benchmark of under 5,000 pounds per quality ad, uh, adjusted life year as a threshold for funding new services. And, and these uh, the investment in first contact physiotherapy uh, has, has uh, met the, uh, the cost effectiveness bar. And so it seems to be a model that we can implement to improve access and care um, at a, in, a, in a cost effective manner. Importantly, within these models of care in the UK, there's a reduced number of primary care visits to other providers and a reduced number of orthopedic consults, which increase or improves access to other providers within the primary care team and other health profession professionals across the health system. We were also, we're also going to highlight uh, the need um, to integrate a greater number of physiotherapists available at the first point of contact within primary care teams across Canada. Uh, as everybody here recognizes, about 6 million Canadians don't have a family physician currently. Uh, importantly, uh, over 10% of primary care visits are related to musculoskeletal conditions. And this is an opportunity uh, to leverage the expertise of another primary care team member uh, to meet the needs of a, of a subset of the population being served by a primary care team. We know uh, already that the, from the previous slides that PTs provide effective care with high levels of satisfaction among patients and other providers in the team. Uh, and in the UK studies that I was just referring to, less than 1% of people that seek care from a first contact uh, physiotherapist within those uh, models of care require a physician visit after that first contact with the physiotherapist. And they're maintaining high levels of satisfaction and positive outcomes. And so if we can uh, have 99% of those people actually um, save that, that visit uh, with the, the physician, it may be a way to improve access to primary care. Often, I think when we uh, are um, talking at health system decision-making tables or, or discussing, um, you know, where do we go with our health system, it's often framed as a question of, can we afford to invest in team-based models of care or integrating more PTs within primary care? But actually, with the cost uh, effectiveness of, of having physiotherapists available uh, first contact, I'd really encourage us to think about this question uh, with a little bit different framing is, can we really afford not to integrate more physiotherapists in primary care in Canada? Because it seems to be costing more not to have the, the, the availability uh, of physiotherapists um, for, for patients who are seeking primary care. So I hope that sets the stage with a little bit of evidence of some of the models that we're uh, going to be speaking about. And I'm going to hand it over uh, to Emily Stevenson and Dr. Wendell Block for the next part of our presentation. Great, thank you so much, Jordan. That definitely sets the stage. Thank you for that a really excellent review of the literature. Um, so as mentioned, my name is Emily Stevenson. I'm a registered physiotherapist, currently the Associate Director of Community Rehabilitation out of the West Toronto Community Health Services. And I'm here to presenting today with a longtime former colleague, Dr. Wendell Block. And we are really pleased to be able to share our experience in implementing direct access or first contact physiotherapy within a primary care team. 
So to start off with a little bit of context, the impetus for this initiative within our center was really linked to the quality improvement plan that we were working on at the time, where we were tracking the percentage of patients who were able to have same or next day access with their family physician or nurse practitioner. So as we worked on this, we identified that a key approach was to really maximize the scope of our team members. We also knew, as Jordan has already shared, that there was really excellent international evidence for the role of physiotherapy in diverting primary care appointments away from physicians and in doing so, creating more capacity in their schedules and faster access. So as a primary care team, we developed this triage tool, which would enable the appropriate redirection of patients to the physiotherapist. So you can see in this tool that the main goal is really to rule out any red flags or more serious pathology, which would require a medical appointment. And what we found was that the vast majority of patients were more than happy to see a physiotherapist for that first contact for their condition. Furthermore, as we implemented the tool and the system gained more traction, the physicians and nurse practitioners within the team suggested that we create a medical directive so that physiotherapists could order x-rays and ultrasounds to further add to the efficiency of the workflow of the team. Now within the primary care team, the role of the physiotherapist also extends beyond first contact for the assessment of MSK conditions. In fact, you can see in this diagram here that it's really the combination of being a first contact provider as well as the ability to provide comprehensive quality treatment plans, which is key to optimizing both patient and system outcomes. Um, as most of you probably know, physiotherapists use non-pharmaceutical approaches for pain management, for improving function and mobility. The tools that they employ can be numerous, including self-management techniques, manual therapy, prescribing therapeutic exercises, and also using various modalities. I also want to highlight that physiotherapists treat and manage many conditions beyond just musculoskeletal. Um, we manage neurological, respiratory, metabolic conditions, all of which can be seen and present in primary care. And we've also seen that physiotherapists have the opportunity to bring specialized skill set depending on the patient needs in that primary care team. So we have physiotherapists who bring expertise in pelvic floor management, concussion management, as well as vestibular conditions. The reality is that the opportunity within that care pathway is that patients will go through it multiple times uh, throughout their lifespan. Um, so just as, a, just as a patient may go to see their family doctor for the management of both chronic and emergent conditions, the opportunity within that pathway is that patients have the opportunity to access a family physiotherapist as a key member of their healthcare team who will, similarly to a family physician, support them throughout their lifespan. So the evaluation of the implementation of these physiotherapy services within primary care team um, has happened across uh, collaboratively across 12 primary care teams in the Toronto region over the past several years. And what we have found is that the results are really well aligned with the existing literature which, which Jordan shared on a few different levels. Um, so first of all, um, that family physicians and nurse practitioners reported making fewer referrals to specialists. They reported a reduced need for diagnostic imaging and a reduced number of clients that they were seeing for pain and mobility issues once a physiotherapist had joined their team. 
They also reported a decrease in the amount of pain medication they were prescribing, and also significantly a, a, an increase in their, in their own satisfaction in providing care, knowing that their patients were able to access the services they needed. In terms of client outcomes, by the fifth year of our physiotherapy service delivery across these 12 centers in the Toronto region, which is just the year before, before COVID, uh, a global rating of change uh, scale indicated that 81% of our clients were reporting a clinically significant change in the condition for which they had seen a physiotherapist. On average, we saw that one physiotherapist could serve about 300 clients in a year and on average saw them for between four to five visits. Lastly, uh, we also completed some interviews with our physicians and nurse practitioners to understand a little bit further in terms of the impact that this service had had on their care. And what they highlighted was the unique scope that physiotherapists brought to the team and the sense of hope that this brought both to themselves and to patients. And in particular, for those patients who otherwise would not have been able to access physiotherapy. So in particular, those who didn't have access to a third-party payer, or who wouldn't have been able to afford it, the services privately. So I'm gonna pass things over to Dr. Block now, who's gonna share a bit more of the benefits of the model from the physician perspective. Hi everyone, um, as Emily said, uh, my name is Wendell Block. I'm a family physician. Most of my career I've worked in community health centers, uh, presently at uh, Gateway Health Center in Tweed. Um, I've also been a regular user of physiotherapy myself, and I want to give a shout out to my personal physiotherapist, Danny Kuzmich, if you're listening, thank you. Um, and, you know, talking about key benefits to patients, um, I'm going to pick up right where Emily left off, just in, in addressing the barrier-free access that team-based um, models provide to our clients. I knew that when I needed physiotherapy, for an issue I was having, I could just phone a private physiotherapy clinic, make the appointment, see them. I had the benefits, I had the salary to cover that. This was not the case for my patients. Um, if I referred, who are mostly were low income and sometimes faced other barriers to seeking care outside of our health center. Um, if, if I referred to an, an OHIP funded clinic, uh, there were often long uh, waiting periods for people to wait to get an assessment. And the funding model, what I noticed as people came back and described the kind of physio care they were getting, it did not match the kind of care I was personally getting and benefiting from. And I did not see the same benefit for my patients. Once we were working closely with physiotherapists in our team, um, People who normally, because of mental health problems, might be shy to go somewhere else or pursue a referral or had language difficulties, uh, financial barriers is a huge one. Um, um, th these folks suddenly had direct and quick access to physiotherapy and often did very well uh, without having to go for a lot of uh, extra uh, specialist consultations or imaging did not require as much as many prescriptions, uh, as Emily uh, said, and would come back to me very, very satisfied. Um, and and that, was, uh, that was really great to see. Um, and as, as Emily also meant, mentioned, having the physiotherapist there was also a huge help in, in assisting us with helping manage uh, non-MSK problems like, you know, post-concussion things, recovery from stroke, 
addressing falls prevention, many, many other things. Um, we can go to the next slide. So for me as a primary care provider, uh, clearly being able to quickly refer the right uh, patients on to physiotherapy or having them refer themselves directly to physiotherapy uh, freed up time for, for other issues in my own appointments. And even people who had comorbidities in our appointments, instead of spending a lot of time on their MSK issues, we could talk more about their uh, diabetes or, their, or do screening for mental health problems or alcohol-related problems, any number of things. We just had more, more time for other issues. Because we had such ready access to good rehab, good physio care, there was uh, less pressure, internalized pressure, I suppose, and sometimes directly from patients to quickly reach for medications as a way to get better, whether they were anti-inflammatories or narcotics. Uh, we wouldn't have to order as much imaging because we'd have a confidence in our physio's assessments. Um, and we didn't have to refer to specialists. I just sometimes you feel like you just want to do something to help the patient feel like you care, you're, you're doing something, something is moving. So you order something, you prescribe something, that pressure was off, uh, which was excellent. It also was really great having a shared uh, health record with a physiotherapist. I could always see how my patients were progressing with their physiotherapy. Were they turning up for appointments? What were the physio's thoughts about where we were going? If I had forms to fill out, I had all that information available. Fantastic. Um, we can go to the next slide. So this of course benefits the whole health system. Uh, it improves the access of, of patients to family physicians and nurse practitioners nurse practitioners. Um, it reduces the number of unnecessary and non-contributory diagnostic tests and specialist appointments. That leads to reduced costs, reduced waiting times for people who really need those interventions. Um, we talked about prescribing less pain medications, which you know, we know will lead to reduced dependence, reduced addiction and reduced appointments for assessment of pain medications and pain assessments, which can quickly become a chronic issue. Okay. So hopefully as we share some of this story, you're already, to, already starting to see some of the incredible opportunities we have to improve access to primary care, in particular at this time of crisis really in our, in our system. So we just wanted to sort of give you a, a, an overview of where we're at in terms of Ontario. Um, there are currently 297 primary care uh, team-based models. So uh, including all the various uh, models, community health centers, family health teams in the province, and 40 of those teams currently report having a physiotherapist on staff. So there's obviously lots of opportunity to expand even within existing uh, primary care teams. We also know that the province is looking to invest in 18 new or expanded teams. So the opportunity is also there to invest in physiotherapy services. Um, the other challenge is to ensure that we have sufficient physiotherapy capacity to meet that demand in primary care. This was one of the findings from the UK that in order for the model to really be optimized and to have the most impact, you want to ensure that the supply really meets the demand. 
Another consideration is thinking about those clients who are connected to solo practitioners or also those who are unattached to primary care. How do we actually provide access to physiotherapy for those individuals as well? And then lastly, we also see an opportunity to expand the role of physios in primary care even further so that they might initiate referrals to established orthopedic pathways, which will really add efficiency to that overall orthopedic spectrum of care. So um, to implement these kinds of pro programs, as with everything, there are enablers and there are barriers. Um, things that are enabling, uh, of course, uh, is, are, is a team commitment to having everyone work to a full scope of their practice, being willing to engage with other disciplines and learn from them and share knowledge. Um, appropriate funding models to result in high quality care is essential. That includes adequate compensation levels to attract and retain physiotherapists, some of the money that, that we know we're going to save through, um, through fewer imaging interventions, fewer specialist appointments and referrals, that money ought to go to the, the physiotherapists, um, or some of the money anyways, enough money to attract people and keep them. Um, clinics will need to create space, and that doesn't have to be elaborate space. We don't need gym-sized rooms and gym-type equipment to, to house good physiotherapy. We found in our health center that a normal clinic, clinical space was adequate for assessments and uh, education and, and uh, starting exercise programs. Shared EMRs are great. Um, medical directives for the physiotherapist to be ordered able to order some imaging is very helpful. And establishing a clinical lead role in an area who can help to implement these programs is also excellent. Barriers are going to be insufficient physio capacity within teams, a lack of physical space or administrative staff to support them, and general resistance to change, whether that's through funding things or, or older philosophies, uh, where you know we as physicians want want constantly to be the gatekeepers, um, but you know once people see the benefits of these programs and having physios working with with you, these things can change very quickly. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Susan Robarts, and I'll be presenting with my longtime colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Gaulish. We're going to be sharing our experience with developing and working within a team approach to specialty care that also utilizes physiotherapists as the first point of contact. So thank you, Jordan and Emily and Wendell for setting the stage. This is a, a second component where we see physiotherapists in this uh, interesting role. We're gonna cover five topics in 10 minutes. First, we'll look at the patient's experience in traditional care and the problems we uncovered. Next, we'll share how we redesigned the journey with an evidence-based approach to improve the patient experience, followed by the benefits, and lastly, how we manage change. In traditional care, there are many problems and inefficiencies from long waits to be seen to the growing surgical backlog. 
Patients waited six months to be seen by a surgeon. And if they didn't require surgery, this was really the end of the pathway. They were sent away with limited education to manage their condition. This was distressing for patients and their providers. And the delay in accessing treatment for musculoskeletal problems can lead to a significant decline in function and quality of life. You can see in the additional details that a simple tweak for the model of care is not going to result in the change needed. Doing more of the same is not a solution. At Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, we redesigned the system based on seven guiding principles. Important to us was to integrate value for the patient and use expensive resources wisely. That meant creating a team approach with expanded roles. And so now you can see the new model of care. We redesigned the pathway to include centralized referral intake and a comprehensive assessment within four weeks, which was the goal. And that comprehensive assessment is completed by a musculoskeletal provider, typically a physiotherapist, but not exclusively. Every patient is provided with education and a management plan to improve and maintain function. And while wait times to surgery continue to be long, patients have a plan to manage their condition while waiting. And we knew that to be essential to patients because patients were part of this redesign process with us. The key difference between the old and new model of care is in the old model, the surgeon is the first contact. In the new model, a suitably trained, experienced physiotherapist is the first contact. This reduces strain on the system and adds capacity. Jeff is going to speak to the value. And Jordan, just before we leave that slide, I just um, want to highlight, <clears throat> sorry, want to highlight uh, what Susan has, has said, looking at the step two, the assessment and optimization. One of the important things that we, it is different in this model is that every patient going through this model receives a management plan. Um, it's important not to underestimate this, this component of the plan because often this new model is simply referred to as a triage model for patients going through the surgery. In fact, that's really not the case. Um, about 30% of patients who go through this model, in fact, do not go on to surgeon consultation, but every patient gets a management uh, protocol, including patients that are going on for surgical consultation so that those patients can optimize and maintain their function uh, before surgery, which in fact leads to better outcomes uh, post-op. It's a very important change not just that the APP is the first point of contact, but the comprehensive model uh, that includes a management model for patients. So do move on to the next one. So well, there's clearly significant value for both patients and primary care providers, as we have seen uh, over time. Uh, by using validated and reliable models, uh, assessment tools for uh, assessment, Patients are able to get a more scientific approach, in a sense, to their to their management, uh, and that is explained to them as they go through the assessment. We've already covered the uh, value of these types of models and avoiding unnecessary tests and interventions. 
some patients present in this model are seen by the APP and it is suggested to them that they should consider going on for a consultation with a surgeon. Sometimes patients are reluctant to do that for a variety of reasons. Um, but if the APP feels that this particular person uh, should not be lost uh, in the woodwork, so to speak, then the patient is offered a reassessment option within three to six months. So let's say they go on to participate in the GLAD program. They want to see how well they do with that. Uh, but the APP clearly felt that they should have a reassessment. That option is made available to the patient if they do not feel that they have no option to pursue a continuity of care. From a surgeon's perspective, the uh, surgical consultation is facilitated when indicated, meaning that if a patient presents to the APP with a very acute or uh, urgent condition, there are ways for that surgical consultation to be uh, expedited, uh, whether it's even a same-day uh, consultation with a surgeon who happens to be working in the contiguous uh, space, uh, or with a specific surgeon within a few days of that consult. From the patient and the uh, primary care provider's perspective, there is the option of choosing next available, which can be next available hospital, next available, in fact, LIN or uh, healthcare network within Ontario if people choose to move outside of their own attachment area. Uh, the choice of, uh, of surgeon uh, is also there. And one of the important aspects of the model was to respect the referring relationship between the primary care provider and uh, the surgeons that they normally work with. To not disrupt that model, but to also to allow the patient to understand that their option, there are options for a surgeons with further wait lists who may be able to provide their service. So less wait time, personalized recommendations, and uh, information on evidence-based treatments are clearly beneficial to the patients, but also very beneficial going back to the primary care provider. Every patient uh, following their assessment provided with their specific management plan, and that plan is communicated with the primary care provider directly in order that everybody understands exactly what the outcome of the assessment has been and what the plan for management is. The shared decision-making uh, with preoperative preparation is really critical, and many patients have provided us with the feedback that the ability to absorb and understand the information that they received as part of the assessment prepared them well for their surgical consultation where they were able to ask the questions they really wanted to ask, the information they really wanted to understand from the surgeon, and the surgeon therefore was able to focus their consultation on these types of questions that often uh, don't happen in the presence of a direct referral to surgeon a consultation where time is very tight and uh, these questions often get, uh, get uh, moved to the wayside. And of course, with this type of preparation, patients have expressed increased confidence how the healthcare system is working. This was a significant change to have someone other than a surgeon provide the initial consultation. So we conducted uh, quite a lot of research and I'm just gonna share a few of our studies here uh, that look at the patient experience, but also the level of agreement between the surgeon 
and the advanced practice physiotherapist, which is so important from a safety and quality perspective. So in this uh, work here, we uh, collected information regarding patient satisfaction. And you can see the high patient satisfaction ratings in all of the categories from the visit overall to recommendations and advice, explanation of the test results, uh, and satisfaction with answers to questions. And so that was really exciting to see that patients were accepting of this significant change uh, to the care pathway. In these clinics, the team has seen over 100,000 patients. So it's, it's no longer a pilot. In uh, these next two studies, I'm just gonna briefly describe these were prospective blinded studies. Um, we found that there was high agreement between the surgeon and advanced practice physiotherapist in, the in both the diagnos diagnosis and the need for consultation. In the shoulder clinic, 50% of patients did not need a consultation with a surgeon and were effectively managed by the advanced practice physiotherapist. And in the spine clinic, it was even higher. 70% of patients that were referred to a surgeon did not need a consultation with a surgeon and were effectively managed by the advanced practice physiotherapist. This represents significant time savings for the surgeon and adds capacity without compromising patient care. And you can see the high patient satisfaction ratings that we received in uh, the, these clinics as well. The other thing that we wanted to see and explore and learn about, we wanted to see if advanced practice physiotherapists would make appropriate use of imaging. And in another published study, they did. And we chose the shoulder clinic in particular to look at this because in the shoulder clinic, um, there is use of advanced imaging, MRI, ultrasound, as well as plain x-rays. And so this was a really good um, uh, exploratory work to see what we would find in doing that. And physiotherapists do utilize imaging appropriately, and this may improve cost-effectiveness of the model of care. To make these significant changes, we followed a nine-step framework grounded in quality improvement science. I'm just showing you the nine steps here and it included, of course, plan, do, study, act, small cycles of change. In fact, starting with Dr. Golish's clinic, I still have to refer to you as Dr. Golish, having worked with you in that clinical relationship for 20 years. Um, and then we also had a structured approach to evaluation that looked at stru structure, process, and outcome. And this really provided a roadmap to allow us to stay on track uh, with the model of care. And it's interesting, uh, over the years, as we've talked to other sites and organizations, uh, often things fall off uh, the rails at step number three, when you don't have the appropriate team members as part of your planning and redesign process. And you've seen here two clinical leads, Emily and I, and two physician champions in Wendell and Jeff. And uh, that's just something for you to keep in mind. Uh, we've published the details around our nine-step process in redesign that's available to you in a healthcare quarterly article. Jeff is going to speak to additional key structures that were important to us as we scaled the model of care up across Ontario. So uh, from 2017 to 2019, Susan and I were the uh, implementation leads working with the Ministry of Health and uh, Health Quality Ontario to uh, bring this model 
to a provincial level. Uh, we've been working together uh, on this model for about a decade at this point. And I'd point out that uh, although Susan mentioned Sunnybrook, in fact, um, over this, <coughs> sorry, over this time, there were seven of the winds in the province that uh, began to use and work with us on this model. And during this time, we also spent time uh, working with uh, colleagues in the UK because they had uh, introduced this type of model approximately a decade before us. And then uh, while we were working on it, we also uh, worked with our colleagues in Australia who were as significant in helping us to uh, develop uh, educational uh, tools. And uh, just a few of the ones on the side there, the uh, uh, orientation manual, the learning plan, and the assessment tools, uh, key elements to this model. One of the most important things in introducing models like this, you have the confidence of everyone using the model, including the uh, primary care providers, nurse practitioners, and specialists to understand the importance of the competency standard. People want to know that they are getting assessment by a competent professional who understands, who knows how to manage their condition. So clearly very important to define the role profile, uh, to have orientation manuals and clinical tools, Surgeon champions in this model were and continue to be critically important. Also important is the community of practice uh, so that there is ongoing education provided, updating uh, standards. And we continue to uh, offer webinars on a monthly basis to the ATP community in the province of Ontario, uh, taking suggestions for topics that they may wish to have discussed uh, on a monthly basis. And, very well attended. Uh, clearly, there are keys to success, uh, which we've been discussing. And uh, I think uh, Jordan, Wendell, and Emily's perspective, uh, the keys to success are the same. You have to engage a team. You have to have a position that has peer influence. And people have to be willing to meet often. It's important to follow a framework for implementation and ongoing evaluation and critically important to establish the value proposition for participation in this type of model. Sometimes a bit of a challenge when you're dealing with a specialist, particularly orthopedic surgeons, uh, I can say from my personal experience. Uh, early evaluation and continuously evaluating the value of your program is important and clearly important to look for ways to expand and, and scale up the uh, concept as well. So just getting back to a final comment, recognizing time is, is moving on here, but uh, critically important for subspecialty models to get the subspecialists interested and uh, participating. And this comment from uh, one of my colleagues at the uh, Holland Center really emphasizes from his approach, both the team approach and the fact that it's patient focused, not surgeon focused type of model and what uh, has been discussed previously looks at the patient piece, not the surgeon piece, a critical element to success in the health care. All right. Thank you so much, Steph and Susan. So I, I'm going to do the next part of this conversation, and really it's around taking primary care home. So looking at the implementation of in-home access to primary care. 
So before I do that, a couple things I want to do. One, introduce myself. I'm Courtney Bean. I am the Vice President um, Strategic Solutions and Partnerships at BHA Home Healthcare. Um, second thing I want to do is I want to take us back in time a little bit. So I'm going to take us back to 2012. And in 2012, then Health Minister um, Deb Matthews had presented her action plan for healthcare in Ontario, where she emphasized you know, care in the most appropriate setting and wherever possible, that setting being at home instead of the hospital or long-term care. And that as we look at that patient journey, local planning and funding would travel with the patient. And so, you know, you look at a in-home primary care model with funding following the patient. Bring us to today's day, 2023, where our current health minister, Sylvia Jones, has um, presented uh, Your Health Plan, um, where there's an excellent description of the investment for home care so that as soon as a patient enters hospital, that home care is being organized and set up to support a client going home early and going home with the home care supports that they require. What I'm gonna talk about a little bit is how do we even stop them from going into the ED and into hospital? Before I do that though, I just wanna um, reflect on one thing. We talk a lot in Ontario about home care modernization. And even though this work definitely relates to home care, we can't attack one area of the healthcare system without impacting the entire healthcare system. So I wanna challenge us to kind of reframe home care modernization to be a healthcare modernization with a long overdue focus on the home care system. So, so in talking about that, I'm going to bring us into house calls. So I'm very proud to talk about the house calls program, which is a collaboration between primary care physicians and a shout out to Dr. Mark Nowachinski who was very involved in the inception of this work. Sprint Senior Care and VHA Home Health Care, and a second shout out to Leslie Coulter, the program manager, who started with this program back in its pilot phase in 2008, and who is now program manager and has been heavily involved in the ongoing growth of this program. So what is this program? It's an interdisciplinary, collaborative um, um, continuous program based on home-based primary care with MDs, NPs, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and social workers. So to your point, Fatima, in the questions, this has that full integrated team and a first contact model that include OTPT and social work. The kind of clients who are part of house calls are, are homebound. So these clients would otherwise not be receiving primary care for the most part. Many of them are frail, marginalized, have cognitive impairments. Next slide. So some of the benefits to the overall health system of this program is the first contact model by OTPT Social Work allow for timely access to primary care. They're often in, able to, based on the triage from the referral, able to identify, um, you know, immediate needs for the client, as well as able to identify potential um, urgency for a visit by an MD or NP. What's really, really valuable about the program um, is that it does lead to a reduction in unnecessary ED visits and hospital admissions. And that allows patients to palliate at home 
and or for patients who, while they're on the program, are deemed palliative, it allows them to, to have their last final days in their home environment. So let's talk a little bit about, about the data and what do the numbers show with respect to um, in-home-based, team-based um, primary care? So last fiscal year, the, the small but mighty house calls team um, you know, uh, did almost 12,500 visits over that year, which is substantial, with 720 averted hospital admissions. And I think that is key, and that speaks to system cost savings with these hospital admissions being averted. From a patient experience lens, patients reported the quality of in-home services as good, very good, or excellent 99.2% of the time. So patients are happy. Um, it's a system savings, and it is an expanding program. Next slide. And so how, you know, what enables this program to be as successful as it is? And what are some of the barriers? So House Calls has what I, what I would say is a super dedicated team, dedicated team who are dedicated to um, uh, working to full scope of practice. So they're committed to that. The, you know, unlike in the previous models you've heard, there's no passing in the hallway to share a conversation about clients. And hence having that common chart is really critical for success in communication, as well as from our comp complex cases, having team huddles and other multiple contact means, some secure where there's patient information, some, some that aren't as secure because it has nothing to do with patient information. So those enable the program and some of the strong enablers, but what are some of the barriers? And one of the biggest barriers, similar to what you kind of heard before, funding. And what you see in the diagram is the current funding model has what I would say is piecemealed funding um, options where allied health is supported by some ministry-based funding that's topped up by a dwindling donor, don donor budget. Um, while the MDs have an alternate funding um, um, model as well as doing work fee-for-service, which often doesn't adequately cover going in and doing in-home care. So it's people who are extremely dedicated and caring to what they're doing, who are going above and beyond what their compensation to go out and see some of these clients at home. The second piece, um, even though I put full scope of practice as an enabler, what I'm also putting it down as a barrier, and I would say it's more full augmented scope of practice. And I give an example here that relates to physiotherapy, where a bill was passed in 2009 um, around scope of practice for physio based on certain regs that still need to be passed 14 years later. Um, you know, physios aren't practicing to their full scope of the original bill. So it's time. It's time to get that passed, get it go through, you know, have it go through, look at what other what other clinicians need augmented scope of practice to increase the access for primary care, both in home, as well as in clinics, as well as in family health teams. So I'm gonna stop there and I turn it back over to Jordan, who I think is gonna do a little bit of a summary while we look at answering some of the questions. Thanks, Courtney, and thank you uh, to all of our presenters too, uh, who shared some really great experiences and some excellent data. I think we see some, uh, some, some shared opportunities here, whether we're talking about primary care or musculoskeletal care pathways or home care, 
uh, that there's an opportunity to leverage the expertise of um, uh, of other team members to increase their capacity and, and potentially the effectiveness of care that we provide. Um, and that there may be, um, that, that this may be part of a, of a greater solution to some of the challenges that we're facing. I'd love to dive into a couple of the questions. I've re replied to a couple uh, by uh, in the in the uh, Q and A section, but uh, but wanted to pull out just a couple of uh, examples that I think are great discussion points. There were a couple um, questions related to funding mechanisms, and I wonder if I can call on uh, you, Emily, because these came up during the primary care part of the conversation today. Um, and I wondered if you could speak to how these PT models uh, have been funded and maybe uh, some examples of, I know uh, the teams that you're working on maybe have had uh, PT capacity for a while, but maybe some examples that we've heard through our primary care networks of, of how teams have added PT members since that time. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great question. Obviously, there's lots of different funding models for physiotherapy in the system currently, but within the primary care teams in Ontario, they, we, they are part of the salaried model. So within community health centers or family health teams, allied healthcare providers are salaried. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to recognize that it's really under that model where we've been able to really provide quality care. One of the things we say, and one of the things that physiotherapists love working in this model is that they're able to to provide the care that's needed. So like you could see in our data, on average, clients are seen between four and five visits, yet for a client who only needs to be maybe seen once, provided an assessment, maybe some self-management, but you might have a client who needs to be seen multiple times in order to manage that condition. So I think really in that model is really what allows for us to provide the right care, the appropriate care to, to, the, to the patients. Um, as Jordan mentioned, since that, so the initial spread of funding in primary care happened back in 2016. You may be aware there were 38 new positions created. Um, and since then, we have heard of other teams that have converted funding uh, for other positions into primary care. Obviously, we don't want to take away the value of other team members, um, but uh, as that, that is one of the ways that um, other teams have been able to add that service uh, into the teams um, that we're, we're looking for it. Thanks, Emily. I wonder if I might tackle, there's a question around the availability of physiotherapists. Um, and, and this speaks to both the availability based on financial coverage for services, um, but also I might zoom out on that question just a little bit. Is, um, the a lot of the people that are working in in primary care, which is where again the moment in the conversation where this question arised, uh, is um, most are, are offering services in a way that the physiotherapist becomes the first point of contact. But we're working not to duplicate services already available in the community, uh, rather to address equity uh, issues and and meet the needs of uh, uh, of patients who are, are that would benefit from physiotherapy services but don't have access elsewhere. And so I think that's an important just piece to, re, to reiterate or highlight uh, there. The availability of physiotherapists, uh, I think, is a big uh, part of the health human resource uh, conversation. And while the number of physiotherapists relative to physicians or nurses is small, it's still an important challenge. Um, and I think the Canadian Academy of uh, Health Sciences in their report on health human resources uh, highlights something really important, which is the collaboration between health uh, system planners and educational institutions and the educational environment. We do need to graduate additional health professionals to meet the needs, whether that's physicians, nurses, uh, physiotherapists, or other health professionals. 
But I do think there's a unique opportunity uh, potentially to look at you know what would be the impact of uh, of redeploying or or uh, or bringing physiotherapists from elsewhere in our health system to serve um, populations. Currently, with private practice models, we are serving people that are well resourced and and probably don't experience the same level of health. Uh, service needs as uh, as people without access, and so I think there is a unique opportunity in physiotherapy to think about that that redeployment piece. Jordan, can I just follow up on that? Do you know how how long do physiotherapists generally stay in their their careers? You know, I, I know physicians we tend to stay a long time, um, and partly because we enjoy it, we get a lot of satisfaction from it. But another way of increasing physio availability is to increase satisfaction uh, by having physios feel their, you know, their, their roles expanding, they're learning, they're doing satisfying work. Is there, is there a role? Is there a place for that? Yeah, I'd love to open that up to others in the, uh, in the conversation to, to respond to potentially. Well, Wendell, I, I just comment from our end of things in our assessment center model and working with the APPs for the last 15 years or so, I think the majority of the people that we work with currently have been working with us virtually for that whole time because they're uh, seeing that they're able to work to their maximum scope, but also that they are working in an environment where they are continuously exposed to up to more education, more opportunities to learn, more ability to expand their scope. I think you and Emily highlighted that quite nicely in terms of non-musculoskeletal conditions where physiotherapists would be of value in a primary care setting. Um, retention of healthcare resource, uh, human healthcare resource is very important. And I think, you know, we've seen uh, with uh, the pandemic, the loss of uh, so many nurses across the province, but I'm sure we've lost physiotherapists and other healthcare workers. And I think attracting those people back, or at least retaining the people we have now is going to be a critical element for the uh, HHR over the next five to 10 years while we are training new people, we need to try to retain who we have and in fact, attract back people who may have left because of job dissatisfaction. And can I throw in there as well? What we've also seen say from the lens from a home care perspective is the more integrative, innovative, integrated, innovative team-based models that exist, the more engaged our teams are, the more the physios are enjoying being part of those teams, greater retention as a result. So the move to innovation, the move to looking at doing things differently has been an important aspect. And I'll just add maybe one more thought. I think just in terms of the burnout that, you know, is really influencing our healthcare resources, working as part of a team, like one of the biggest advantages is that there's a shared sense of responsibility, there's collegiality. Um, and so that burden of care can be shared with other team members. So I think that's one of the other real advantages and one of the ways that people find a lot of satisfaction within these roles. And these are, I think, some of the intangible things that we maybe haven't you know, published about or, or research, but I also would would join that conversation where it's just such a rewarding experience to work in a model of care where you feel like you're making a significant difference to patients. And then now, you know, be, being able to make a significant difference to the healthcare system and the current crisis, uh, it, it's tremendously rewarding and fulfilling to be working in these models of care. And 
I really, I, I hope that today's conversation stimulates a lot of thought to go forward. Yeah. Thank you. An excellent note to finish on, uh, Susan, as we approach the top of the clock is, is that we really do hope today's conversation was a jumping off point and not an end point uh, to the conversation. We hope sharing some of the research uh, uh, that uh, we've been involved in and the experiences of implementing uh, have been helpful in, in uh, stimulating that conversation. Uh, and we've all included our, our contact information within our individual slides at the start of our presentations uh, and would welcome uh, on to, uh, to participate in that ongoing dialogue. Uh, just wanted to say thank you. There were more questions that kept coming in. Um, just to let everybody know, I will forward all of the questions off to the speakers and there may be future opportunities for them to address them. Um, it'll also help them in developing and, and continuing the development of this program. Um, just wanted to say it's summertime. Get outside if you can, although we all know that every single province is currently dealing with smoke. Um, but uh, do your best to get outside, enjoy the weather, enjoy your summer, and we'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye.